Money FM 89.3. Best of Drive Time. Drive Time with Elliot, Timothy, and Chen Chen. Only on Money FM 89.3. Money FM 89.3. Good afternoon. It is drive time with Elliot Danker, Timothy Goen, Chua Tian Tian. Time now for Eurowatch. We will be taking a look at what's dominating headlines out of Europe. A Russian jet struck a US spy drone over the Black Sea, knocked it out for, of the sky two days ago. And it's one of the first direct military confrontations between the two nations' forces since the war in Ukraine began more than a year ago. So we'll talk about the ramifications of an already tense Russia-US relationship. Plus, over in the UK, you would have read about this in the news. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt unveiled the contents of his first budget in the House of Commons. What's the focus? Well, prompting those who have left their jobs to return to the workforce. And also claims that the UK is no longer going into a recession. Yet at the same time, I'm still hearing people a little pessimistic about the UK economy. Well, on the line with me is Dr. Samia Puri, who is visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College London and the author of Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. Uh, Dr. Samia, good afternoon. How are you? Oh, very well, thanks. Nice to speak to you again, Elliot. Indeed. Uh, I do enjoy our conversations. The latest from the Russia-US fallout. Accusations flying over a US spy drone uh, dr- downing over the Black Sea. Who's to blame? What does this mean for the uh, already rather frosty relationship, Dr.? Yeah, it's really worrying. As you said, this is the first direct confrontation between Russian and American military equipment and assets uh, since the war began. What it means is that there's going to be an even bigger gulf between America and Russia over this conflict. The Americans are really angry. These these drones, this Reaper drone that was brought down, it costs about $34 million dollars. That's a lot of money. Mm. And whether the Russian uh, is a Sukhoi 27 fast jet interceptor, uh, it's the same sort of generation as the F-15s we see flying over our heads here in Singapore. So it's not too new, the Russian jet. But whether it brought it down, this drone down on purpose, or whether it was by accident because it was flying too close to it, whether it was trying to harass the drone or actually bring it down, we don't know. But what we do know is that the Russians didn't deploy a weapon system from their plane. It was some kind of mid-air uh, collision. But where this drone has gone down in the Black Sea is another mystery. We don't quite know exactly the location publicly. Mm. And there's a race now to find the drone. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, has said they want to recover it. Of course, the Americans want to get it back. So that's maybe another side to the story that will unfold again in, mm. in the future. Okay, Dr. Samir, don't laugh at me, but I watched and read The Hunt for Red October, and I want to appeal to your war study side. The odds of a miscalculation here, or perhaps an unintended escalation, as you mentioned, possibly a collision. Yeah, look, by the way, let, let's just get one thing clear. The Hunt for Red October is actually a very good book. I read it myself in the film, of course, with Sean Connery. So, but it's, isn't it strange those Cold War stories <laughs> yeah. suddenly become really current in our mind? They yeah. are actually quite a relevant reference point. And you're right to say, how do you contain the situation uh, from escalating? Well, I think in this instance, common sense will prevail. Okay. But the, the thing that will unfold is probably quite private. The, the Americans will work out how to avoid this from happening again whether they fly their drones at a different altitude or with escorts or something like this, mm. uh, we don't know. But there will be a lot of behind-the-scenes reaction. Actually, talking about common sense prevailing, then it, it's going to be a difficult conversation, right? Like whether or not the US is going to develop a more assertive Black Sea strategy. You can't help but think there's a temptation of uh, the payload that's uh, somewhere in the Black Sea right now. 
Yeah, and the Black Sea is a real source of tension. I think sometimes because the fighting is happening in Ukraine, we don't remember this. Countries like Romania and mm. Bulgaria, they're really worried because they're, they're very close to Crimea, which the Russians annexed. And don't forget, there's also Turkey as well that controls the entrance of the Black Sea. It has its own views over what's happening. So there's lots of different players, not just America and, and the Russia. And one final observation on this, mm. there is a very obscure treaty called the Montreux Convention that's supposed to ha- help prevent the naval militarization of the Black Sea. That's, that's nearly 100 years old, that, that treaty. So I think since then, this is probably the biggest kind of concern around the militarization of the Black Sea, because there's a lot of a lot of air traffic, military air traffic, there's a lot of naval traffic yeah. as well. And that's where the Russian warship, the Moskova, was sunk back last April. Ah. I think you might remember that, also yeah. in the Black Sea. Right. Okay, Dr. Samir, let's uh, switch tracks to talk about the United Kingdom. They unveiled a cost of living budget. Strikes, of course, uh, one of the issues that are happening there. I guess very broadly and very, very, I mean, to, to, to set things up, what do you think can be done to alleviate this this issue of the, the, the strikes happening? Obviously, we've discussed before, it's really a cost of living yeah. problem, right? Yeah, yeah. So just on a personal note, it makes yeah. me very glad that I'm in Singapore, not necessarily <laughs> I can imagine. in the UK. I can imagine. I've never in my lifetime seen this this frequency of strikes yeah. affecting so many different parts of the British workforce: train drivers, teachers, yeah. even university lecturers. When I was a lecturer in London, right. we went on strike as yeah. well. So I think uh, with this budget, what can be done? One interesting comparison, I think, for for Singaporeans is that in the UK, there are no good options for early childcare. Mm. And this is, uh, you know, we don't have the helper culture here. So maybe people forget that actually, you know, it's just not, there are no other options. So the big thing from this this budget for so many families will be a revamp of the childcare that the government will support for one and two year old children to get those parents getting back to work. Otherwise, you can't go back to work. You have to stay home, look after your child, all spend £14,000. That's about 28,000, 30,000 Singapore dollars a year to, to keep your child in daytime care, yeah. which at the moment is, is not tenable. That's the private private market rates. Yeah. Uh, so I, I have to work extra hard to make sure I can take care of my kid. It's funny, uh, Dr. Samir, we're talking about this, potential solutions. Yeah, at the same time, you've got this claim from Jeremy Hunt saying that the UK is no longer going into recession. Inflation is going to fall even faster. I, I feel I'm hearing two sides here. The government saying it's all good, yet friends that I have in the UK are saying, no, the state here is no good. No, I, and I think the, the here and the now, it, the, the cost of living crisis, energy bills going up, inflation on yeah. supermarket shops, it is hard for people. But at the same time, I see where Jeremy Hunt is coming from. As we all know, in economics, there is this, the, the self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> okay. You have to build confidence. And I think you have to have a confident story that this is not going to get worse, it's going to get better. Mm. Otherwise, people panic. And that will compound the economic problems even further, I think. So then, you know, you have to have a confidence story. I assume on the political front, this is somewhat go some way to save the Tories in that sense? Well, some people think nothing can save the Tories, electorally <laughs> speaking. Okay. Uh, even, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Rishi Sunak. I think he's a really, you know, balanced uh, individual yeah, in yeah. leadership. But I think it's so long in power that the way the UK system works in history, so with Thatcher fell, yeah. uh, even when Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, they, mm. they finally lost the election. Mm. Eventually, the pendulum does swing. And I okay. think, you know, the odds are that Labour might, might do very well. 
Right, right. Okay, finally, the UK is also bolstering its military spending. We're looking at uh, $6 billion, uh, introducing measures to counter China. This is something that's been brewing for a while. The UK has also been trying to establish relationships in ASEAN as well to counter China. Uh, What are your thoughts on how the policy seems to be shifting in a more obvious sense? Yeah, the policy has definitely shifted, and this is a refresh of a of something called the Integrated Review in British Foreign and Defence Policy and Development Policy. It was only completed two years ago. They've already refreshed it this week uh, alongside this budget uh, increase on defence, okay. mainly because of the Ukraine conflict. That's changed things. Just very quickly, what my thoughts are, okay. Britain's dilemma is maintaining its large financial support for Ukraine in wartime while also managing its Indo-Pacific tilts. Both of these are very expensive endeavours and there there has to be give and take between them, I think. Right. I am curious if I were to flip it and and try and get your view on what China might be thinking right now. I mean, what does this do for their own foreign policies? They they already have tensions or or a a tense uh, relationship with the United States. So we've got another one. Yeah, one interesting note on this is so the original integrated review I mentioned, this defence review that the British government issued, yeah, yeah. they did put a Chinese translation on the British government website alongside the Welsh translation, Arabic, French and others. Yeah. So I think it was really intended to be read by Beijing. Right. And what will it do? I mean, the UK is not as big a player as the, as the USA, of course, not even by a long shot. Mm. But the memories of the opium war, the memories of uh, the British Empire, they can be, uh, I think, messages that, that the Chinese can find resonate at this time when they ask themselves, why does Britain think it has, has a business in this part of the world? I'm not making a judgment on that, by the way, mm. but those are the sorts of arguments that you can sometimes see in, in the Chinese press in, in reaction to Britain's uh, sort of stated ambition to have a role and a presence uh, patrolling and keeping security in the Indo-Pacific as well. Mm. Politically, it's going to be quite challenging and, and really this is just a broad uh, sort of opinion. Uh, when you consider there are still issues with regard to Brexit that they haven't sorted out and you've got these foreign policies and you know, like we were talking about earlier, the cost of living issue. Matt, I wouldn't want to be in Rishi Sunak's shoes. No, no. It's like a crisis after crisis yeah. after crisis and it accumulates the pressure. And I think, you know, the UK will be living with the consequences okay. of Brexit okay. forever. Okay. I mean, that, that is, it's not going to go away. Okay. <laughs> there you go. I've been speaking with uh, Dr. Sam Puri, who is visiting lecturer in war studies at King's College London and the author of the book Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. Dr. Samir, always a pleasure speaking with you. Have a great Thursday evening ahead. You too. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.